Well, in our uh, series of um, random psalms uh, that Steve um, has, uh, as he was saying last week, has calculated and finished sometime 2029 20, or something like that. Um, and that's assuming that we only accidentally cover 50% of the psalms twice. Uh, we're at Psalm 24. You'll notice that we're taking them in order. Don't look for logic. <laughs> um, Psalm 24, uh, let's pray. Lord, this is such a wonderful um, psalm, wonderful poem, wonderful hymn. Um, and we pray that uh, the subject of this psalm, the King of Glory, would be glorious in our eyes and that we would worship in the hearing and respond with worshipful living. In Jesus' name, Amen. So one of, the, one of the things not to do with poetry in the Bible is to treat it like it's something like Romans or, you know, a logical argument, um, because it ain't. Uh, and uh, one of the mistakes sometimes that, that, that you come across people doing, so this is what Steve last week, I'm not, this isn't a reference to any way, being handled, but, but even now trying to understand what's going on in the psalm, um, is, is, it comes under the heading of dissecting the skylark to find the song. You, you can take it apart and take it apart and take it apart to find out what it means, but actually all the meanings in, in poetry are woven together, and trying to disentangle them actually destroys the thing itself, like dissecting the skylark to find the song. Um, so, what we're going to look at as we look at Psalm 24 is loads of different themes, all interwoven. And one sparks off another. It's like a bowl of spaghetti. If you pull one strand, loads of others start moving at the same time. Um, or you think you've got a few nicely twiddled around your fork and you pull it up and half a dozen others come and splatter tomato sauce all over your front. So sounds are like that. They're so interwoven that you take them as a whole and to dis sort of disentangle the, the, the themes ruins them. All of a sudden you realize all you've got are bits. Uh, it's how they work together. And the other thing about Psalms um, is that whilst there's a lot to understand, and they'll be giving some stuff to understand, background stuff and all that, um, more than any other type of writing that we find in the Bible, they are to be felt. So it is the, the response of our hearts that the Psalms are there for, in exactly the same way, because these were, this was Israel's songbook, um, that, that when we are singing, it's not just our understanding of the word, it's never less than that, but it is how we feel and how our, how our hearts, and how bits of us that mere propositions never reach, respond to God. So as we were singing just then, and we were, you know, singing Alleluia and, and reaping that in that song, um, I found, the word of testimony, I found my own heart changing. Because like earlier on today, this morning, um, I just felt like a long way from God. And, and I felt, you know, bad about myself and guilty and, and, you know, shabby and all that stuff. And yet, it was just as we were singing there, and things from this psalm going through my own head, 
Um, that I just thought, oh Lord, in your presence, I'm worshipping you and glad to do so. Thank you for your mercy. And bits from, from what Dan was saying this morning from Psalm 51 were going through my head and I found that really helpful. So listen to the tape, but it was just, it was a really straightforward, no messing, to the point, great look at Psalm 51. And uh, um, so I commend it to you. So I was experiencing God through the singing at a level of the emotions, which is most of what your brain does anyway. Um, like your conscious thought is one ten thousandth of what your brain is doing at any one moment. And so the Lord reaches bits that um, mere arguments don't. Now all that is actually appropriate for Psalm 24 because there are loads of themes woven into this. So what I'll do at the beginning is just give you an easy thing of what's going on in the psalm. Uh, and I'm going to read a, a, parallel, a, a passage which helps us to understand it. And then let's look at it in a bit more detail. So the easy thing is, is, is this. Um, we, can, we have access to God. So make the approach to God and worship God. It's really simple. We have access, so make the approach and worship. And that really is, is what this psalm is about. And it's also what Hebrews chapter 10 is about, um, particularly from verse 19. So if you've got a, um, a, a Bible in some form or another, please turn to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, and we're gonna read just a few verses from verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19. Uh, you've got um, one of the big black ESVs, it's on page 1007, which is kind of appropriate, really. <laughs> I was on door duty at, at Hillview this morning, and I was, so I was doing my kind of Jason Statham, <laughs> you know, John Wick, Jason Bourne thing. All these people were marauding, I was fending them off. I was 007. No, I didn't have to, there was no security involved whatsoever. <laughs> Hebrews ten nineteen. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter, ESV says, holy places, um, most holy place, the holy of holies. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So you've got it there. We have confidence to enter. We've got the access because of Jesus right into God's presence. So draw near, make the approach and worship. So Psalm 24, um, let's read it and then we'll, we'll do a little bit of background just to see what the themes are that are woven together um, and uh, then we'll, we'll make one or two comments. Psalm 24, I'm reading actually from, from the NIV um, for no apparent reason. 
The earth is the Lord's. Now, I'm going to do the thing that um, occasionally I've done before because it's really, really important in Psalm 24 that we get this. So you'll notice that the word Lord is in small caps, which means they're translating Yahweh. So since God gave his name, let's not substitute it for a title. You know, it's like going up to your dad and saying, yes, sir, or certainly, sir, um, or whatever. You know, he's given his name, so let's use the name. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh Sabaoth. That is, Lord of hosts, lords of armies. He is the king of glory, Silla. So, there are three blocks of material in the psalm. Uh, some psalms, it's the what's in the middle that is the main point, it's just the way they were written. Other psalms, it goes from one to two to three. So, and that's how this psalm goes. So, um, we follow these main blocks, but they're interwoven, so let's not be too sort of uh, analytical about it. The first is uh, just a declaration that the earth belongs to Yahweh and the fullness thereof. So it's what, what he filled it with. So he made this place and he's filled it, the physical earth, the world and those who dwell therein, the peopled world. So the physical earth with all its teeming creatures and its plants and its clouds and all the rest of it, he it, he owns it, it's his. And the world and its people of all nations, tribes and tongues, everybody belongs to him. Why? For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, um, we need a little bit of background coming in here. So um, we've got a picture to go up onto the screen. Um, not of uh, the fields around Kintor, um, which were ripe for harvest, but now harvest. Now this is this is so. This is how people in Bible times thought about the universe. It's not how we think about it. We have a picture of of, of our own solar system with the sun in the middle, the planets orbiting around, and then beyond that, there's other solar systems. Uh, there's the whole universe. There's the cosmos. So this is how I can send this slide to anybody who wants it in audio. Um, so this is, they, they thought differently in Bible times. So this is how they thought of it. Um, the first thing 
to notice is that the, in, in Bible times, the world is a disc. Those of you who like Pratchett's disc world, he was right. <laughs> the earth is a disc. And it's that we have the sea, and coming off the, the, the mountains, we have rivers, and underneath, the, so beneath the earth, we've got Sheol, and we have the foundation of the earth, like foundation pillars, you know, or piles jump down into the great deep. And then we've got this ring around here, this diving is called the firmament. And inside the firmament is everything we can see. And so we have the sun which travels. You know, remember from the rising of the sun, going down that one, obviously. So up it comes, and, and the scriptures it, it races across the sky. So that's the sun, and the moon does the same thing, the stars do the same thing. Beyond them is not space, like we would think, beyond them is it's, it's, it's this skin called the firmament. And everything is within the firmament, and it's all founded upon the foundations here, which are driven down into the sea. So the clouds, everything else is here. Now, above the firmament, we've got what in Genesis we have called the waters above the firmament. So rain comes in clouds and snow that come from above the firmament, and they fall through onto the earth. Which is why in creation you have the earth being made wet before you've got clouds and stuff like that going around. So it's all coming from above the firmament. And then above that you've got the heavens. So the heavens are the sky, the heavens are above the sky. And that's, the heavens is where the gods live. And to get from where we live, which is on the earth, surrounded by the sky underneath the firmament, there is, you've got it here on the picture, there, it says gate of heaven, right? Verse 7 onwards in our passage. You've got the gate of heaven. So, now here's the thing. Um, in, in, in the scriptures and in other ancient Near Eastern um, writings, the sea and the rivers Water, uncontrolled water, is a um, metaphor, a sign for chaos and rebellion. Because it's something you can't tame, something that we can't, it just is wild and uncontrollable. So when Jesus calmed the storm, there was way more going on than Jesus calming the storm. And that's why the disciples, not just as well, oh, I haven't seen anyone do that with Sea of Galilee before. It was, who is this? What kind of person is this? So, <clears throat> what, what God has done in creation is to beat, suppress, win over all the forces of chaos and rebellion and turmoil. And he has brought order into the world. So he laid, you know, the scriptures keep telling us that God laid the foundations, the, 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 the heavens on the foundations of the earth. God drove down the pillars of, of, of the world. Um, it is God who conquered all the other gods in heaven. So the great battle that creation came out of in Hebrew thinking was the 
battle of the heavens. That's why God is, is known as the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. Not just because he beat a lot of Philistines and Israel and Hittites and Canaanites down here, but because he did that because he had already conquered their gods up above. Now, that gets woven into, into all sorts of passages of scripture, but for instance, in Daniel, the whole Daniel begins with the temple in Jerusalem getting raided and the stuff being taken to Nebuchadnezzar's temple in Babylon. Why does it begin like that? Because Daniel is about a battle of gods. Because the big issue when Israel went into exile was, has our God been defeated? And, and that's what it looked like to the people when Babylon's gods won because they got the stuff from Israel's temple, God's temple. So this notion of the battle in the heavenlies and God's victory in the heavenlies being repeatedly translated into God's victory on earth over chaos, rebellion, sin, restlessness, disorder, is, is a major theme in the Old Testament. God victorious in battle in the heavenlies over everything, other than everything else that is a God, and that victory giving him authority and power on earth. Now the second strand to weave into that is that in the Old Testament, God has a vice-regent on earth, and the vice-regent on earth sat on a throne in Jerusalem, which was the place where God would make his name to dwell. So the king in Jerusalem was there to, to he, he was a, I feel like he was a way through which God exerted his order over chaos through his law, through the ordering of society with just and good laws, through the quelling of forces in battle and God giving victory in battle. So you see what God was doing through David, the king, was a little picture of the big one, was literally a microcosm of the big cosmic picture. And we don't think, we approach Psalm 24 by and large thinking, well, that's good. You know, love it in the old magical version, ye gates lift up your heads on high, and all that kind of thing, very stirring, goosebumps, um, or not. But there is so much going on here, because the psalm is a psalm of enthronement of the king. So every year, the Israelites would have this enthronement ceremony, where the king would enter into Jerusalem, would enter the temple by the time they got on in Solomon's day, but they would enter into, this, into the most holy place in Jerusalem, even in David's day. Um, that was mirrored in the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem and into the, into the sort of holy place in Jerusalem. The, the idea of enthroning the king and celebrating that for the people of Israel was a declaration that God is our king because he is king over all things. Now you get that woven into all sorts of psalms. So there are all sorts of enthronement psalms. Psalm 110 is another one. There are psalms of entry into the temple. All the people entering into God's presence together. Um, psalm 100 is another one of those. Psalm 15 is an entry psalm and parallels some of Psalm 24. 
You get lots of psalms about the king and the king being victorious in battle. So there's a, there's a lovely pairing of psalms. Psalm 20 and 21 go together. Psalm 20 is the people praying that God will give the king victory in battle. And Psalm 21 is the king rejoicing after victory in battle. So what, between Psalm 20 and 21, there was a battle going on and, and, and the king of Israel won. So these themes are all over the place in Scripture. So God, who founded the world upon the seas, drove down those foundations and everything else, and planted the, the, the mountains deep into the seas and all that kind of thing. God, who founded the world upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, did that by his victory over chaos and unruliness, and the other word for that is sin. Now that's why in the last section of the psalm, in verse, verses um, 7, 8, 9, and 10, we keep, all of a sudden it's this king of glory, the Yahweh strong and mighty, Yahweh mighty in battle. Like, where did that come from? Well, it came from all this. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. So what's happening is the, the, the picture, you know, where, where what, what, what's going on when, this, when, this, when they're singing this, all the people are making their way into God's house, into the presence of God, into the place on earth, the epicenter, if you like, of, the, of God's presence. And they're going into the presence of the Holy One they're rejoicing in their king, who is God's vice-regent. They're rejoicing in victory over enemies. They're rejoicing in the fact that they are the Lord's people. They are worshipping God. And they are full of joy. And the reason why they are free to worship and be full of joy going into the presence of God is that the king goes in ahead of them. God's vice-regent on earth goes in ahead of them. So they're following the king, waving their palm branches, waving their hands around, having dancing and celebration and enormous joy. They're entering the gates of a physical place which was a copy on earth, we read in Hebrews, of the reality of going into the gates of the heavens, right into God's presence. So Psalm 24 is a big psalm. You know, there's a lot going on. And it's a psalm that answers the question that they raise in verse 3. If, if I'm going to go into the presence of this God. If I'm going to go into the presence of Yahweh, who is holy and who is enthroned and is almighty and who does battle against unruly rebellion and sin, how on earth? 
Am I going to go into the presence of this God? That is not a question on most people's lips. Because I think for most people right now, there's this idea that if there is a God like the God in the Bible, then he owes me. And I'm entitled to go into his presence. Just because I'm me. That's one. The other mood of the, of the spirit of the age, which, which, which we can feel so badly, is I couldn't possibly go into the presence of a God like that. Um, when I was when I, when I was a student, when I was a lad, um, we did a questionnaire one mission week at, at Aberdeen University, and we had these question, questions in the central ref, and we put it together all neatly and everything else, and we did over a thousand of them during the week. And the last question was, if you could meet the God of the Bible, would you want to? And the correct answer was, yes, well, come along to our meeting, hear the gospel, you know, kind of thing. It was so subtle. Um, out of all those questionnaires, we did, one of the lads who's, um, you know, a bit sort of geeky, did lots of stats on it uh, afterwards. And he told us that there was, in, in over a thousand questionnaires, there was one person who said no. One. And he said, if there was a God like that, I wouldn't dare go into his presence. I wouldn't last. I thought, well, that one person is probably nearer than the thousand or more who said, yeah, sure. Or, yeah, sure, but I don't want to come to your meeting. <laughs> so that, that question in verse 3 is, it is the vital question in all of human existence. How on earth can I live before a holy God. How can I have any fellowship with God? How could I possibly draw near a God like this? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer in verses 4 and 5 and 6 isn't particularly reassuring. Well, you can only get there into the presence of this God who goes to war on sin. You can only stand in his presence if you've got clean hands, that is, all your deeds are clean of sin. And when God talks about clean, he means like really, really clean. So we're thinking Psalm 51 this morning, washed whiter than snow. So, rules me out straight away. Pure heart. So you've got the outward deeds and then you've got the inner motives and the inner thoughts and feelings and desires. I don't have a pure heart. That will come as no surprise. None of you do. I mean, relative to one another, there are degrees of purity. But relative to God, all we've got is degrees of impurity. Clean hands are outward deeds. Pure hearts are inner motives. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false. No idolatry. No, no appeals to, to any other of the gods of the age. No dancing to anybody else's tune. No living your life in fear of any other thing. 
than idolatry. So with respect to God himself, no fault. And does not swear deceitfully. So socially amongst other people, no false relating. No false words. So externally, internally, with respect to God and one another, complete purity. This is the person who will receive blessing from the Lord. This is the person who will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, if, if that's the way they were thinking, or since that's the way they were thinking, then none of them should have been going in to the temple. <coughs> of course, they are following their king. So they can enter because somebody else at their head, at the head of the procession, at the head of what is in effect a triumphal procession, is, is saying, you, you're my people, you're my generation, I'm one of you who went out and did battle, come with me. And because he, the king, has been victorious in battle, then everybody else is safe. So this is a psalm about David the king who was victorious in battle going in and all the people coming in after him and they're rejoicing because there's victory over all this horrible stuff that was coming against them. And they know that there's just as much horrible stuff inside them but they're following the king. So of course it's a psalm about Jesus. What was holding me back, the way I was feeling about myself, was, well, I don't have clean hands, I don't have a pure heart. I lift up my soul to what is false, I swear deceitfully. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not pure like driven snow. But somebody else was for me. I try and do battle against sin and I keep losing. Some wins, but not just wins. So what does God want me to do? God wants me to sort of hang back and turn myself out of his presence by my forelock and sort of, you know, miserable in a corner whilst everybody else is at the party. And God wants me not in his presence. No. So, amongst the people, God placed his king. So when Jesus is called son of David, it's not just a genealogical thing. He is God's vice-regent on earth. He is, he is God reigning on earth. No need of a vice-regent anymore. It's like in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, you get God railing through those two prophets against the, against the kings of Israel because they'd let the people down. They hadn't restrained the chaos. They hadn't gone out and done battle for them. They'd let them get ripped off by everybody. So God says, I myself will come and 
in, in, in the language of those chapters and in the most frequent motif for kingship in the Old Testament, I, might come, I myself will come and shepherd them. And Jesus in John 10 stands up and says, I am the good shepherd, the good king. So, the, the God himself has come amongst us, and as one of us, just as David was one of the Israelites, has done the battle. Remember in Hebrews, it says, he who was going to represent us had to become like us in every way. So he became one of us so that he could fight our battles. He was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted, because you get tempted. The devil was at him all the time, kicking him when he was down, because the devil does that to you, does he not? The devil accusing him, opposing him, throwing obstacles in his way at every turn, because the devil does that to you. So Jesus came and did all that and won every time. The woman at the well get chatting up Jesus because we're all prone to sexual temptation. Jesus exhausted in the back of the boat because we all get tired out and vulnerable. Jesus physically weakened because we get physically weakened and are vulnerable. Jesus provided with all sorts of opportunities to be self-indulgent. Why? Because you are also provided with gazillions of opportunities to put anything at the forefront of your life except God. And at every point that he was tempted just like us, he won. So there was a human being with clean hands and a pure heart who not once lifted his soul to what was false and not one word that ever came out of his mouth was false. And so he Raised from the dead, obedient to the end, even death on a cross. Ascended where? Ascended into a building in Jerusalem? Methinks not, sire. Boom, straight up. <laughs> you know? That's why he went up in clouds, through the gate of heaven, back home again. And you and I, therefore, can go into the most holy place. And instead of being burnt to a frazzle by his holiness, can stand. That's what's going on in the cell, and more besides. So that's why, you know, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful. We have the access. So make the approach. To worship. Because the funny thing is. That this psalm is all about the wonder of the king. Lift up your heads O gates. Be lifted up that the king of glory may come in. So it's all celebrating the king. What, what I mean to say is there is no, there is no way in which, this, you know, sometimes ev everything that we're doing when we're worshipping ends up being about us. <laughs> um, I don't mean, you know, I saw criticism, it's something in my own heart. Everything, you know, that, that I want to turn everything into something about me. But this is all about the king. I mean, there's, there's none of me to celebrate in Psalm 24. It is the end of celebrating self because I don't have a clean hand, a clean hands, pure heart, and all the rest of it. It's all about him. So, but there is no photo bombing Jesus in this psalm. It's all about Jesus. <laughs> I'm needy. You've met my needs. Thank you. <laughs> There's no photo bombing Jesus here. And that's not, yeah, okay, it's a challenge. <laughs> but actually, that's what makes experiencing the reality of this psalm so amazingly wonderful. Ironically, we are at our most joyful and our happiest when we're not looking at ourselves, but when all our gaze is fixed on him. And it is in that, this is a wonderfully self-forgetful psalm. It is in the forgetfulness of self, in the proper Christian sense, and in the sight of the glory of the King. And ourselves just following him. Isn't he wonderful? That's the wonder of worshipping with something like Psalm 24. You know, it is a blessed release from a captivity to self-preoccupation. And that's not what it's about. It's just one of those wonderful side products. It is about Jesus. So we'll read it again. Um, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. 
Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the King of glory. Sarah. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the King of glory, glorious in every way. Just resplendent in victory and power and holiness. We thank you that all the blessings you've received, you share with us, the generation that follows. All of us connected through the generations, down the years, by you. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We praise your holy name. In you we find our joy and our peace. Amen.